Okay. Uh, my apologies uh, to you uh, and to the earth for the wad of paper that I've put before you. Um, I'm going to uh, flip through this, and we're not actually going to dwell on many of the figures, so it's not as uh, lengthy and intimidating as it might initially appear. Um, what I'm going to do is provide uh, an overview of uh, a book that's coming out this fall, which is entitled, as the lead uh, sheet says, Bounding Power, Republican Security Theory from the Polis to the Global Village. And the basic project here is to reconstruct uh, the main line of thinking uh, in Western thought uh, about uh, security from violence. And uh, if you'll turn to the table of contents on the next page, uh, we're going to sort of walk through uh, initially uh, the theory argument at some length, and then we're going to walk uh, through the uh, exegesis uh, from the Polis to Federal Union and then uh, the more contemporary towards the global village. And the starting point of my investigation uh, is the recognition that the two of the key facts in the contemporary world uh, are globalization and the liberal ascent. And that international theory uh, centered on realism and liberalism uh, is not giving us uh, an adequate set of uh, handles, tools, to grapple with these two phenomena. And what I'm essentially doing is attempting to recast the Western tradition uh, in a way uh, that makes globalization and the liberal ascent central rather than peripheral to our understanding of international theory. Now, by globalization, uh, I refer to a five-century, four-dimensional process. Uh, security, economics, ecology, culture. Uh, rising levels of interdependence in all four of these dimensions over the last five centuries has been the dominant development in world political life. And in the matrix of this process of globalization, uh, the second major fact, the liberal ascent, has occurred. That is to say that there has been a radical change, particularly over the last two centuries, in the position of polities characterized by political liberty. This is a major shift uh, in the overall human historical record. Prior to two centuries ago, the dominant view among Western political theory uh, was that republics, polities devoted to political liberty unlimited government uh, were rare and were destined to remain rare. It was a very pessimistic uh, reading of the prospects uh, for human freedom. Now, in thinking about why we should use language of republicanism, why that would be appropriate, I start with the notion that realism and liberalism, uh, these are two terms that were essentially coined in the 19th century. Uh, we, we, of course, have these the realist tradition where various theorists have gone back and taken the realist or the liberal name tag and stuck it on to various of these theories that uh, wrote uh, prior to the 19th century. But the reality is, is that liberalism and realism are 19th century coinages, and prior to the 19th century, uh, the overwhelmingly dominant conceptual vocabulary for thinking about security and government in the West uh, was in Republican terms. And if you'll turn to uh, the, next, the first of the cartoon figures here, uh, page 7, I've spared you the first six pages, um, we 
I have a little schema here uh, attempting to uh, situate what I call Republican security theory, which is the part of the larger circle. Republican security theory is not equal uh, to all varieties of republicanism. If we were to look at all varieties of republicanism, we're basically looking at all uh, of Western political thought, uh, and we're not going to try and do that. Uh, focusing on realism and liberalism, uh, both of these are very heterogeneous, right? uh, many different uh, ideas, uh, many splendid things. Uh, but the six uh, main ideas, I call these the six polar ideas, if you would, the tall points in the realist, the tall poles in the realist and liberal tent uh, are, for realism, uh, the anarchy problematique, uh, balance of power, uh, and the idea of international society. So those are the three tall poles in the realist tent. Uh, and for liberalism, uh, it's equally simple, and perhaps even more simple, democratic peace, uh, commercial peace, and various ideas of international unions. Now, these six poles, if you would, in the two tents of realism and liberalism. Now, all six of these ideas were clearly formulated first in the language of republicanism prior to the 19th century. And my objective is not to demonstrate that, although I do that. My purpose, however, is instead to combine these six ideas and key elements that were dropped out, key elements that were dropped out from realism and liberalism as they broke off from republicanism. So I'm basically going to characterize contemporary realism and liberalism as descendants of republicanism that are fragmentary and incomplete. And my objective is then to provide uh, the republican security theory uh, from which uh, they originate uh, in this earlier period. Now, in thinking about the uh, overall trajectory of Western thought uh, with regard to this topic, uh, I boil it down to what I call two problematiques. Uh, the first and second problematique. And this is on uh, the second, uh, the next page here, uh, number eight. The two main problematiques of Western structural materialist security theory. And let me uh, note uh, that despite the apparently expansive character of this argument, it is narrow in an important way. I'm looking at structural materialist security theory. And by structuralist here, I mean arrangements of political authority and by materialist, I mean material context, and I'll say a great deal more about that, uh, as they relate to security. So we're basically looking at how different arrangements of political authority relate to material contexts and uh, with regard to security. Now, the first of the two problematiques uh, I label the anarchy interdependence problematique. And the basic uh, schema is very simple here. Uh, variations in material context are understood to be shaping variations in the size of government and variations in the scope of tolerable anarchy. Nested within the first problematique is the second problematique, which I refer to as the hierarchy restraint problematique. And essentially what I'm going to do uh, for the remainder uh, of the first part of the presentation is unpack these two problematiques. Um, let's turn to the first problematique, anarchy interdependence. You return to the next page, uh, which doesn't have a page number. 
Um, we're, of course, all familiar with arguments about anarchy from the anarchy problematique of neorealism. And uh, in this figure, uh, I've schematized the sort of basic notions uh, that we have a pre-state anarchy, uh, in Hobbes's language, a state of nature in which either individuals or small groups uh, lack authoritative governance. And uh, then we have uh, the necessity for the appeal of creating a state uh, in the broad and empty sense of an authoritative government. Then we have another anarchy between such units, an interstate anarchy, uh, in roughly Habesian terms, a state of war. Now, the first anarchy, the pre-state anarchy, is characterized uh, nicely by Hobbes as being marked by nasty, brutish, and short. The interstate anarchy of the state of war uh, life is nasty and brutish at times, but the life of the entities that are in interstate anarchy are not understood to be short. So we have two different anarchies here, uh, this pre-state anarchy and an interstate anarchy, uh, and they're radically different with regard to our understandings of whether government is necessary, right? The conventional view is that a pre-state anarchy in central uh, parts of realist thinking. A pre-state anarchy is the worst of all security situations. You've got to get out of it. You need to have government. On the other hand, the movement out of an interstate anarchy uh, is understood as largely unnecessary for security reasons, right? that states don't die commonly in interstate anarchy. Uh, and the idea that we would have a government of governments, an anar a post-interstate anarchical government, uh, is understood uh, in the conventional realist narrative to be uh, a utopian project, fundamentally. Now, I want to ask the question, what is it ultimately that determines these two different anarchies being so different from one another? Right? They're both anarchies. Why are they so different in their implications for security? And the answer to that question, I believe, uh, takes us to the next sheet, uh, again, unnumbered. And this is the variable of violence interdependence. When I use this expression, violence interdependence, it's very discordant in terms of our contemporary understanding of uh, terminology. Because on the one hand, we have uh, the realists that are talking about violence uh, and uh, say interdependence doesn't matter. And insofar as they talk about interdependence, the realists tend to say states are going to avoid it, particularly great states are going to avoid it. Liberals, on the other hand, of course, talk a great deal about interdependence, but the interdependence they focus on is the interdependence of economics and somewhat increasingly ecology. So we have a very odd situation uh, where violence interdependence is talked about by neither the realists nor the liberals, uh, the realists talking about violence and the liberals uh, talking about the powerful effects of interdependence. I maintain that violence interdependence is in fact the most important variable, the most important material contextual variable in Western thought uh, about security and political order. Now what is violence interdependence? It's essentially a measure of the capacity of the actors to do harm to one another. Uh, we can illustrate this uh, notion by thinking about this room being the entire world. Uh, we might imagine one situation in which the room, uh, the population of the room, uh, is equipped with pencils. 
And we might say that some people, you know, Randy over here is going to have five pencils and uh, Ted over here is only going to have two pencils. Well, that's a distributional variable, right? But we want to separate the variable of interaction capacity of violence interdependence from distribution effects. Then imagine we have a technological change. Instead of pencils, we now have knives. We still might have distributional variation among who has more knives than others, but the shift from pencils to knives is not a change in the distribution of power. It's a shift in the composition of power, a shift in the level of violence interdependence among the actors. Then imagine we have another technological shift. We move to a, this room, and the actors now have guns. Again, some might have more or less, but the shift from pencils to knives to guns is a shift in the level of violence interdependence among the actors. A further technological change, and the room is now filled with the same actors uh, with machine guns instead of guns. Uh, we're not going to allow Randy to have a machine gun, uh, and that's a distributional effect, certainly. Uh, but the change from a world of pencils to knives to guns to machine guns is essentially a shift in the level of violence interdependence among the actors. And I uh, very crudely schematize this variable, as I do in this figure here, absent, weak, strong, and intense. And I make the claim tie this back to the anarchy argument, that what distinguishes the pre-state anarchy that Hobbes characterizes as a state of nature from this interstate anarchy is the level of violence interdependence. Implicit in Hobbes' argument, and in many of these other state of nature arguments, this variable pops in at key junctures to play an immensely powerful role is this claim that the actors are in effect in a situation of intense violence interdependence vis-a-vis -vis one another. And so in a situation of intense violence interdependence, the main argument of Western thought is to have security, you have got to get out of anarchy. You have got to have authoritative government. Conversely, Situations that are marked by weak or strong violence interdependence combined with anarchy are not necessarily intractable for purposes of security. Right? The states may bang against one another, may dent one another, but life is nasty and brutish, not short. Implicitly then in the state of war interstate uh, image, <laughs> is the assumption of violence interdependence being strong or uh, weak versus intense. Now, what I basically then do, the next step in the argument is to say that globalization, the change in material context over this five century period, is essentially a change in the size of the space within which intense violence interdependence is present. And I'm going to talk about this at great length in this next uh, figure here. We'll unpack this. And at, uh, page 15, turn to the next page here. This is the key figure. Uh, everything leads up to and out from this. And what I've done in this figure is to, on the uh, vertical <laughs> axis, uh, put a measure of scale and uh, four different 
four different modules of it, uh, increasing by roughly an order of magnitude as we go up. A city-state size, a nation-state, Britain, France size, macro, continental, mega, global. Order of magnitude increase in size of space on this axis. On the uh, horizontal axis, I schematize, again, very roughly and crudely, four different periods of material contexts. And uh, we're going to talk more about material context uh, later, but for purposes now, material context is made up of the combination of geography and technology. And uh, Republican security theory, in other words, has a geopolitics, uh, not simply in the conventional sense of geopolitics as international theory, but geopolitics in the sense of geography, material context, shaping uh, political uh, arrangements. And so the geopolitical, this material contextual, is something which is integral to Republican security theory because the material context defines which powers, which capabilities must be restrained in order for security to be present. Now, let's look at this figure uh, in somewhat more detail. Uh, this hatch line here, you've got this, uh, th all this space I'm basically coding as characterized by intense violence interdependence. We've got, we're going to walk up this diagonal axis, and then this space here is characterized by strong violence interdependence, and this space here is characterized by weak violence interdependence. Now, one of the, this figure contains a great deal of information, and uh, let me start unpacking it. First of all, we should note that at a global scale, until the beginning of the modern era, we didn't have any interaction capacity at all. We didn't have violence interdependence. And therefore, to talk about anarchy existing at a global scale is extremely misleading. What was the relationship between, say, the Roman Empire and the Mayans? There wasn't a relationship. Right? There wasn't violence interdependence between those two uh, polities. And so we don't want to think about global scale arrangements as being anarchical, except over the last five centuries. And to further complicate things, this is somewhat aside, I refer to this as a null argument. Uh, there is no possibility of rule. For there to be an anarchy, not rule, there must be the possibility of rule. Over the last five centuries, as we cross from period one to period two here, uh, we have globalization producing an interactive system on a global scale for the first time. Now, the main narrative of the development of Western thought with regard to anarchy the point that I just made a minute ago, that intense violence interdependence combined with anarchy is understood to be incompatible with security, has been stated at several junctures. In the ancients, we read Thucydides' portrayal of the civil war in Cosira as this image of the state of nature. And even though the Greeks were, at least in Thucydides' narrative, obviously engaging in an interactive interstate system, 
the main problem in Greek political thought was to get out of that anarchy at the micro scale right, to achieve polis government. And when they don't have government at that scale, it's understood to be the first and most primal of security problems. Then we cross into the early modern period where we have gunpowder weapons and so forth. And here we get the same argument made over again by Bodan and Hobbes. But now they're making it at a larger scale. Now we have this first, this state of nature anarchy that is understood to be occurring at a scale, not of a city-state, but of a nation-state. And so the image for early modern political thought of the state of nature is Germany in the Thirty Years' War. Right? The same argument, except it's at a larger spatial scale that is being made because violence interdependence is now intense at a larger spatial scale. Then we cross into the third period of the Industrial Revolution, and we have, beginning in the late 19th and early 20th century, we tend to forget this in our realist narrative, a great many theorists in Europe who are basically saying the Industrial Revolution has made Europe into, in my language, a first anarchy. It was a second anarchy, a state of war arrangement here, but as we cross the threshold, we've gone from strong to weak. A state of war anarchy has been thrown back into a state of nature anarchy because violence interdependence has gone from strong to intense. And so the basic argument among European and international theorists during this period uh, was not about the balance of power. It was instead about the fact that anarchy within the European-sized space has now become fundamentally incompatible with security. They're either going to have disastrous war uh, or they're going to have consolidation. Two possible forms of consolidation, one hierarchical, one federal-confederal. That's the basic outline of Europe in the 20th century at system theory level. We tend to forget that by emphasizing the balance issue. And we'll come back to talk about balance at great length in a few minutes. Then we cross the nuclear divide. The arguments in the early part of the nuclear period, from roughly 1945 to 1955, arguments made by realists, by the main realists of the period, John Hurst, Hans Morgenthau, as late as 1964, are making the argument that nuclear weapons have done for continental-sized polity, such as the United States and the Soviet Union, what the Industrial Revolution had done for Great Britain and Germany, what the Gunpowder Revolution had done to the city-state or the feudal fief. Nuclear weapons have rendered them militarily security obsolete. That was the first realist reading of the nuclear revolution. And the expectation was that there was either going to be a catastrophic war or else there was going to be some form of consolidation, world government. World government was the first realist answer, the first realist reading of the nuclear revolution. I'm going to come back to this at length uh, at the end. But to emphasize that violence interdependence is now understood to be at an intense level on a global planetary scale. And the same argument that Kassira, the Thirty Years' War, Europe, now global, violence interdependence is intense, combined with anarchy, is incompatible with security. Government is necessary. Now, that's the main 
development of the arguments of the anarchy interdependence problematique, essentially walking up that axis. Now, note that we have this second axis here where we have the possibility, not the inevitability, but the possibility of state systems that are second anarchies marked by strong violence interdependence. And when we come to uh, the later part of the talk, we're going to look at the European state system here in the second period and the beginnings of international system theory nested within this more general argument. Now, the main trajectory of Republican security theory in the first problematique is walking up this axis. But it is also the main trajectory of the second problematique. And I'm going to turn to that in just a second. The key idea being that Republican security theory, and I'm going to unpack this at considerable length, is attempting to simultaneously avoid the extremes of anarchy and hierarchy. The first problematique is about anarchy. The second problematique is about hierarchy. What separates republicanism from realism, among other differences, is that the republicans understand the security problem as to be more extensive than the realists do because the republicans understand it to have a dual source in hierarchy and in anarchy. So if you'll skip the next two pages, uh, which is essentially a text version of what I just uh, provided uh, with regard to that figure, to what page 11, the two by two. Right? We're, we're switching now, shifting now into the second problematique, the hierarchy restraint problematique. And uh, the understanding of Republicans and this figure is essentially a gloss on the argument that occurs uh, by Publius uh, in the first 14 Federalist Papers. Understanding the security problem to have these four different dimensions, anarchy, hierarchy, inside, outside, stasis and civil war inside, outside total war and annihilation. They add to that the internal threat of extreme hierarchy of tyranny and despotism and the external threat of imperial conquest and subordination. So I basically want to say that the realist orientation is deficient with regard to security from violence because it's left out half the problem. It's left out the hierarchy part of the problem. And what I want to do is bring that back in and conceptualize it in a way that connects to a general system theoretical vocabulary. Now, if we'll turn to page 12, um, we see a fundamental difference with regard to the architectures of republics and states. We now use this term state in a sort of empty sense to refer to uh, an autonomous polity. When Lostato was originally uh, employed for political terms in the early modern period by Machiavelli and his contemporaries, a lastato was understood to be the radical opposition of a race publica. A lastato, a political hierarchy, a political erection, is the rule of one or few over the many, and it's understood to be at the expense of the alternative model. So I schematize here what is a fundamental divide with regard to the arrangement of political authorities. 
sovereignty in the higher state model uh, is at the top and the lines of authority go down. In the Republican model, the people as a whole are sovereign and they delegate various authorities which then are configured in such a way as to prevent their reaching critical mass and oppressing the many. And so it is in that delegation and arrangement of governmental authorities that we have the logic of limited government constitutionalism. And we're going to come back to that, and we're going to walk up, we're going to walk up this axis and see that the major developments in Republican security theory with regard to hierarchy are essentially efforts to scale up the restraint of hierarchy on larger and larger spaces. Now let me try and register what I take to be this fundamental difference between realist and Republican thought, where realism is the deponent. Uh, the next figure, please, uh, page 13. Uh, the, this is a, an attempt to expand our typologies of political ordering principles. Uh, we have, uh, from Weber uh, on through Waltz, uh, the realist notion that arrangements of political authority come in two pure types, hierarchy and anarchy, and various mixtures between them, a dyad spectrum model. What this conceptualization does is it writes out from step one of the argument, from the basic typology, is written out the entire second half of the Republican security theory uh, solution and understanding. It essentially writes out of the story of security theory the development over the last several centuries by the United States and kindred regimes of restraints on hierarchy as a security phenomenon. It vanishes. Republics become just another form of hierarchy. What I want to do is to try and register this key Republican notion that's been left out, and I coin this term negarchy. Uh, and by that I mean uh, a political authority arrangement that is characterized by the simultaneous negation or restraint of both anarchy and hierarchy. A negarchy is created by the mutual restraint of actors, mutual co-binding, creating various political authorities. Now, negarchies are republics, or rather republics are negarchies. Negarchy is the structural ordering principle that characterizes republican units and unions of republics at a system level. And of course, in this triad model, uh, we have the spectrum of mixtures of negarchy and anarchy, uh, mixtures of hierarchy and negarchy. Right, so we have a multiplicity here of different arrangements that we now have included the Republican negarchical element in. And if you'll turn to the next page, page 14, the same figure, right, which is basically the system level versions of this. Right? Just as we can uh, conceptualize hierarchy and anarchy, both at unit and system level, so too we can conceptualize negarchy at both the unit and system level. And so we plug in here the various forms of 
system structures uh, that are hierarchical, negarchical, and anarchical. Now, the move that I want to now explore is the development of Republican, in the sense of negarchical government, from the polis up through the period of the nuclear revolution. The nuclear revolution, of course, we don't have negarchy at a global scale, but the logic thereof. To understand the shift that occurred in the internal architectures of Republican polities, uh, the figure on page 18, I think, is helpful. Uh, and this is the idea that we have an Aristotle developed more by Galileo, now a working inside of engineering and biology about scale effects. And that is that when there is a change in size, there is a change in the ratio of components, and therefore there is a change in unit type. Right? This is a key insight that is uh, richly developed uh, by Montesquieu in particular. So if you'll turn to page 19, we actually can see this in operation, where we have uh, the Republican, i.e. negarchical architectures that are moving up the scale in terms of size. Right? And the key junctures in the development of free government are the developments of forms of mutual restraint, limited government over larger spaces. So we have at least the mythical image of the direct rule of the uh, publican polis, uh, which probably didn't ever actually exist. Uh, then we have the simple republic, the early modern image. And then we have the compound republic. Now, the expression compound republic is, of course, Madison's in the Federalist Papers. And uh, pause here for a moment because this is a key juncture. Prior to two centuries ago, as I said at the beginning, the basic expectation of political theory about free government was that it was condemned to be a marginal phenomenon in world politics. And we're going to unpack the logic of this in a couple minutes. But the key juncture for the transformation of the Republican, i.e. free government project, is the founding of the United States as a compound republic, as a federal union, as a union of republics. And this is crucial not simply because of the internal story, but because of the larger security story. That it is only at this juncture, only with this union of republics, with this compound republic, that we have republican polities that are large enough to be viable in interstate anarchies. This is why it's a crucial turning point. No longer are republics condemned to dwarfdom. We're going to unpack that move and its implications for security. Now, what I want to do here, sort of bound by my figures to a degree, is unpack some of the arguments about material context and their interaction with different forms of mutual restraint government uh, from the ancients uh, through the contemporary period. I'm going to do this very quickly. Uh, start with the first period, Polis to Federal Union. Figure 21, uh, we have with the ancients, um, uh, I mentioned this idea of material context. And uh, this is a set of arguments that has largely been ignored uh, by uh, political theorists in most cases, as well as international theorists, and the material contextual arguments of the ancients and early moderns 
uh, I label physiopolitics, physio from the Greek word for nature, physis, physics, and so forth, politics. Aristotle and Montesquieu, like two of the three founders of political science as opposed to a normative and deductive political theory, have numerous physio-political arguments. You read the politics, you read the spirit of the laws, there's all these arguments about climate and topography and soil fertility and land-sea access. They are reading the material context as providing series of restraints and opportunities. Right? This is physiopolitics. And this type of argumentation then, as we cross the industrial divide into the 19th and 20th century, gets restated with the technological element being much more explicit. And that gives us late 19th century or uh, classical so-called uh, geopolitics right, of Mann, Mackinder, Haushofer, Wells, and so forth. So there's two moments in this material contextual argumentation. The first period, which is cast in naturalist language, there are techniques, there are ships, and there are swords and so on, but there doesn't seem to be any systematic reflection on the possibility of change in those techniques. They're, they're basically treated within a very naturalist framework. It's almost like parts of the landscape interacting with the landscape. As we cross the industrial divide, we get a much more explicit unpacking of the technological component in the material context and its uh, increasing dynamism. Now, if you turn to the next, uh, well, figure one is an argument in Aristotle, basically. You know, why do we have polities that are commercial and naval and democratic? It's a material contextual argument. I won't go into that length for purposes of brevity here. Uh, turn to page figure, uh, to, to page 22, please. Um, the ideas of the ancients and early moderns uh, about the uh, pessimistic prospects uh, for uh, self-government uh, can be encapsulated, summarized in uh, what I refer to as the two iron laws of Polish republicanism. And uh, the first of these, summarized on this figure, is basically to say their assumption that they're condemned to small size. And therefore, they're going to be militarily vulnerable. As a result of that, those that exist are going to depend upon geography, on being on a defensible peninsula or an island of some sort. They're going to be very fearful of stasis, of internal discord, uh, because they're going to have to maintain their cohesion. And they're going to be highly dependent upon the inculcation in their citizen body of military virtue, uh, of martial skills. Uh, the ancient city-state is significantly a warrior com commune. The implications of this on the far vertical uh, line here, first of all, they're going to be rare. They're going to have anti-liberal tendencies. Uh, they're going to fear socioeconomic stratification. They're going to fear the softening effects of wealth. They are anti-commercial, and they're going to tend to be very militaristic and imperialistic. Now, this first law of Polish republicanism is particularly important for my general argument because for those of you who follow political theory, um, much of what I've said has been very discordant because I have been essentially reading in uh, what I would characterize as a first liberal argument all the way back to the ancients. 
Uh, by first liberal, I mean that freedom from violence is the first freedom, and that Republican polities, based on popular sovereignty and limited government, have as their objective, first and foremost, not by any means all their objective, the establishment of security from violence, both anarchical and hierarchical. Now, the conventional view of what Republican is in political theory is that it's anti-liberal, right? This is the, 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 the dichotomy, right? We, the the, the neo-Republicans are basically saying the ancients had republicanism and it was anti-liberal. It was anti-liberal because it was anti-commercial, it was communal, uh, it was highly militaristic, uh, and they want to revive in various ways uh, communitarian sense of community that the liberal in the modern has lost. And the liberal, of course, in the modern is understood to be commercial, Right, it's compatible with capitalism, and it's interest-based rather than virtue-centered. Right? Very sharp opposition between the supposed characteristics of the ancient republic and the modern liberal. What I do in this first law of Polish republicanism is basically to say that these polities are, these ancient polities are at their core animated by that first liberal project, and they are forced by their straightened circumstances with regard to the provision of security to take on these various attributes that we see and that the theorists emphasize as being so different from the modern. And then I want to centrally say, and that's going to be the next steps in the argument, what happens, why we go from the ancient model of Republican to the modern liberal version of Republican is because of the shift in the security situation of these polities. These Republican, supposedly anti-liberal features are necessary adaptations to their straightened security situation, which is going to begin to loosen in the modern period, giving us the possibility for the full burgeoning of the political freedom that we characterize as modern liberalism. Now, the next figure, 23, second law of Polish republicanism. Um, today, in liberal thought, the attempt to create a kind of parallel tradition, hallowed authorities, ancient uh, prerogative and presumption, uh, has not been, of course, as ancient uh, in its lineage as the realists, you know, that realists are claiming Thucydides and Machiavelli and so on. In the liberal version of this tradition building, the figure of Immanuel Kant uh, plays an absolutely pivotal role. Uh, and it is a democratic piece that, of course, is seen as the central liberal understanding or contribution to international thought, particularly as it relates to security. This is a very misleading picture of the development of these arguments. Kant, of course, wrote to the latter part of the Enlightenment, and he was, of course, a Republican. He used this language of Republicanism. But more importantly, Kant has missed what is, in fact, the main axis of early modern thought about the problem of security. And this is not difficult to see. It is the lesson of the Roman Republic. And so I'm going to say that it is Publius, not Kant, that is the actual culmination of this first phase of Republican theory. And the key argument has to do with the Roman Republic. And this is, I capsulize this, the second 
iron law of Polish republicanism. We read the early moderns, and what are they talking about? They're talking about Rome all the time, and Kant is quite distinctive and largely ignoring this, despite the fact that he reads Latin and draws from Stoic political thought for his ethics. The basic picture that we have here that was drawn in antiquity, that was repeated over and over again in early modern period, was a very pessimistic prognosis for Republican security. And the argument is simple, that a republic that gets large, one possibility is a republic stays small, it's going to be vulnerable, extinguished, going to have to be militarized, going to be rare. The other alternative is for a republic, as did the Roman Republic, to militarily expand, to dominate its neighbors. What then happens to internal political freedom? It is lost. In overcoming external adversaries, in becoming large and therefore secure, republican internal constitution inherently, it was believed, evolved into a monarchy. And this is, of course, a reading of the death of the Roman Republic. And the two different axes here, uh, on the upper, you've got the sort of socioeconomic consequences, the undermining of the free peasantry and the creation of this urban proletariat. But it is, of course, on the second bottom axis that the really lethal blow is delivered. And this is the decomposition of the citizen uh, soldiery where increasingly large distances, wars being continuous, it's no longer possible to be citizen and soldier simultaneous, reliance on a de facto standing army, and who is it that kills the Roman Republic? It's the generals. Okay? There's the figure of Julius Caesar right, that haunts the Republican political tradition. External success in achieving military security produces the situation that leads to the death of the republic. The problem then is we do not seem to be able to combine large and secure with free and republican. And it is against that understanding of the republican security problem that the American founding is cast. It is a new order of the ages, they claim. It is new because it combines the viability of an empire-sized polity with free government previously only associated with the small polity. So to walk through some of these points here very quickly, I don't want to go much longer here on this part of this. Uh, We have these various arguments uh, skipping really before the American Constitution, so let's just skip this. And let's go to page 28, made those arguments. Another key juncture in this development of argumentation. Uh, The European state system. Uh, Early modern system theory is the beginning of ideas about the balance of power, right? Where does the balance of power come from? When we turn to Enlightenment political thought, the Europeans were uh, cognizant that their political order was no longer a universal monarchy in either creation or decay. Certainly, universal monarchy was understood to be the default model, the Roman imperial model, other comparable regions in Eurasia that were consolidated by great houses. There were certainly aspirants to do this in Europe, the Habsburgs, the Bourbons, and so forth. But in the 18th century, the Europeans began to say, well, that's certainly always the default, but we have something that isn't that. We have an international system in our language. 
How did they conceptualize it? And the answer is they called it a republic. Uh, figures such as Montesquieu, Burke, Fenelon, many other lesser figures referred to Europe as a whole as a republic. Now, they didn't mean to say it was a city-state self-government, of course. What they did mean to say is that it was constituted by various restraints. And it is here that balance of power migrates from internal polis Republican theory to system theory. Right? Republican theory, Polybius, Machiavelli, balance of power is key feature of Republican polis. It migrates to the system level at this point. But that was not their most important argument about why Europe was a second anarchy rather than a first anarchy or a universal empire. And I've listed these here. It's division, then balance, then mixture. And division, let's focus on that. This Republican terminology of division, division and separation to restrain power. The argument that we see laid out particularly by Montesquieu and Rousseau in very, very lucid terms is that Europe is different from a universal monarchy because power is divided by nature. And what they specifically refer to is topographic fragmentation. Europe is topographically fragmented in a way that other regions are not, and this is the first reason why Europe does not consolidate into a universal monarchy. Then there was balance, and then there was mixture, land power, sea power, making possible a balance or state system. I won't go into that. So we basically then have an image. Europe is a system that is a republic, but note that this is not the claim that Europe is a negarchy. There is not restraint in political authorities. The restraint is in, if you would, nature. Europe is a republic by nature. It is a mutual restraint system where the restraints are in the material context. And then, of course, the move across the Industrial Revolution is essentially to say, well, division is breaking down. Violence interdependence is now intense, and we're going to have catastrophic war or else some form of consolidation. Note that this is radically different this, this notion that Europe was a republic, and this is where these key ideas of international theory come from, this is radically different than the standard account because, of course, the standard neorealist picture is units are hierarchy, system is anarchy, radical difference between the two. In fact, international system theory is first conceptualized not as different from units but as analogous to one particular type of relatively anomalous unit, the republic. 29, 30, 31, we sort of set all that. That's basically the Publian watershed, okay? Now we're gonna cross the industrial divide and I'm gonna go quickly here. So we cross the industrial divide, material context, technologically driven becomes more important. There's a great fragmentation in conceptual languages as we enter the 19th century. We don't have nearly the unity of conceptual vocabulary that we have from the ancients through the end of the Enlightenment. But underlying all these different debates between these many different schools on page 33 is a very common problematic. 
And that is they're attempting to understand what is the implication of industrialism combined with global geography in technologies of uh, destruction, capabilities of production, and they essentially have a very wide-ranging debate about which of these economic and security forms fit or are uh, um, basically adaptive to this new material context. Right? This is what provides unity to this immensely disparate set of vocabularies, social Darwinism, Marxism, etc. cetera. Uh, skipping over here, um, we have on page 36 uh, the debate, and I won't go into this at great length, we basically have, we've moved into this third tier here, and they're basically asking the question about what is this space here going to be like? What are we going to have on a global scale? This is what international theory between roughly 1890 and 1945 was. Not a debate about the balance of power particularly, but at the system level, this is a debate about whether the anarchic system will get replicated at a global scale or whether the more typical form of political arrangement, i.e. a universal monarchy, a world state will emerge. And so Mann, Mackinder, Wells, Haushofer, Spickman, these people are essentially reading the material context, geography combined with technology, to see whether there was a, the system was disposed towards consolidation. And they took that very seriously that there was likely to be an empire of the earth. Ratzel, Mackinder, many others basically make the claim that that is the default material contextual tendency here. And others arguing for claims about how and why the state system might ultimately preserve itself. And on page 37, I basically have schematized these different figures. Uh, different positions that they make. And I won't go into this at length either. But I want to highlight the ones here that are on the lower right-hand axis. It is at this point that we have the next major step in the development of negarchical Republican political thought about world order. And the key figure here is H.G. Wells. He is the first to basically make the claim that violence interdependence is now at a, at a global scale is strong, but is soon going to be intense. And he basically wants to in, in conceptualize new forms of republics that will be global in scope. This is the first point in Wells' work. 1913, Wells is following nuclear physics. The, has a book and he says there's going to be a uranium bomb and it's going to be used and in the wake of that catastrophic war, we're going to have world government. Right? He's way ahead. He's basically saying intense violence and independence. And he is giving us a new image of the projection of the Republican form up to this next level. Right? So the debate between 19, uh, 1890 and 1945 is not idealism, okay? And then realism came in and overthrown. Hello, no, it's not the case. It's geopolitics. It's this material contextual argument, a system change, move into this third period. What are the outcomes? That's the debate. And within that debate, there was a very robust liberal federal Republican alternative, H.G. Wells, 
First, as the prophet of the American system, H.G. Wells was a big American fan. This was America writ large, was basically the image. And then, ultimately, a world federal republic. Now, uh, I want to turn to page 37C here. I know I'm running out of time. I'm going to hit the high point on this. This takes us to uh, a re-understanding, a new understanding of the character of the American liberal internationalist project. The original material context of the United States was one of relative isolation from Europe. As the Industrial Revolution comes along, late 19th, early 20th century, figures such as, H, uh, figures such as Woodrow Wilson are basically saying, we're now going to be interactive with the European great powers much more extensively and intensively than ever before. And that is going to produce the problem of domestic state building. We are going to have to imitate. If we stay, we, the United States, stay in a competitive Antarctic situation, a global scale, we are going to have a movement domestically from limited government to autocracy of some sort. And this, of course, in the 1930s and 40s is a very, very real scenario associated with the idea of the garrison state. Right? That a, note that this period doesn't last very long. We only have World War I and II. What if we didn't have nuclear weapons and we stayed World War III, IV, V, and VI over a century or so right, of global industrial warfare? Liberal democracy is doomed. Right? We might be able to secure the country, but we can't preserve the Constitution. And so the project of liberal internationalism gets articulated at this point. Now, it has many different strands to it, but the core, I believe, strand is this regime conservatism. This is Madisonianism in the context of global industrial uh, con interdependence. And so on 37C, I, I attempt to capture what is the basic move, that the, the two diagonal lines in the figure are possibility frontiers. And in the early, the, the, the line that's nearly vertical, that's the earlier situation of the United States. We had the possibility of having limited domestic hierarchy, being low on the vertical axis, while the international system did not have many republics and many unions uh, in, at a system level. The basic claim of liberal internationalism in this republican vein Interdependence is occurring. That possibility frontier is shifting out. Right? And so that by the time we come to a fully interdependent world, and these are prophets, these are people saying over the next century we're going to become this. We're going to be in a possibility frontier that's going to be much different. And the basic argument then of liberal internationalism is to save the Constitution domestically we have got to transform the other units from hierarchies into negarchies, i.e. democracy promotion in contemporary language, and we have got to abridge anarchy between the units through various forms of union. That is the project of liberal internationalism. It is regime conservative Madisonianism in the context of global industrial material interdependence. Now, I want to say just a couple of words about the nuclear. I, I have gone on too long. Can I, another five minutes here, and then we'll stop, okay? Back to this key point here. 
we had crossed the nuclear divide. The first point of the realists was we're going to have to have a world government. Then from 1955 on, the deterrence argument wins out. And I've, what I've done here on this figure on page 39 is basically schematize the range of the contemporary debate. This is over 50 years now, the nuclear era, about the different alternatives. And deterrence has been, we've got war strategism, deterrence in its various forms, and then arms control as a kind of modified deterrence argument. Right? The, the sort of middle three positions, the security studies trinity, if you would, of strategy, deterrence, and arms control, has dropped out that nuclear one worldist position altogether. I want to say a few things about it and then provide an updated version of it. Turn to the next page, if you would, please. Page 40. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I still, I'm going to say a couple of things here, okay? Uh, they had this debate, right? This is, what, this is what the nuclear debate was. How do we get out of anarchy without then having hierarchy? They had reached an impasse. They had reached an impasse. Get out of anarchy, but then we're going to have world government, which will be totalitarian. How can we envision federal unions and so forth to restrain this, okay? Out of the fire, out of the frying pan, into the fire. They reached an impasse. Now, this argument that we need to have world government has, of course, largely been dead uh, over the last several decades. And the uh, turn to page 44, if you would, page, which is the third from the last page. Um, this is an attempt to partially, part of the revitalized version of the nuclear one worldless argument. We're going to be making this case for world government of a different form. We have crossed over a threshold into an utterly unprecedented historical situation. Non-state actors with the possibility of weapons of mass destruction take us out of the range of previous historical experience of the ratio of the killers to the killed. We have never had governments that have had to deal with this problem before. This is the fundamental problem. And my essential argument, which is captured then in page 46, right, is that we are, is, note the similarity of this figure to the one about liberal internationalism, that the threat is that if we have 9-11 to the fifth power, we're going to have uh, the Patriot Act to the fifth power, and that unless we have global nuclear containment of this hyperviolence capability, we are going to have the end of non-hierarchic government. Let me finish then with one statement. We come to this image of world government at the end. Two points. First of all, our best inherited wisdom, the accumulated logic of the tradition, tells us that world government is not unprecedented. What would be unprecedented is if we stay in this material context and don't either have disaster or government. That would be new. It's not unprecedented. We have reversed the onus of utopianism. Second, a world government is unlike all previous governments in one crucial regard. Barring aliens or colonization of space, it doesn't have to have a foreign policy. It doesn't have to interact with other polities in a larger scope anarchy. That was always the case prior to now. This means that a purely negarchic, i.e. purely mutual restraint government, now becomes more appropriate than it's ever been before in history. All other previous republics have been compromised 
by the demands of competition and external anarchy to build internal hierarchy. That's no longer the case. Purely negarchical, world government, mutual restraint, tailored to this material context, now becomes fully appropriate given this logic solution set. Thank you.